The canopy goes down and the canopy just sort of nestles, just you can almost feel it on the top of your head. So you're really right inside it. The cable is connected. You hear the sort of rattling of the ring, but then the acceleration just comes on like you wouldn't believe and you're airborne. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck, and I'm your host coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 74. Thank you for joining us for another aviation adventure and guest pilots. Two great guest pilots will be joining us. But first, a big thank you to our biggest contributor to the podcast this week, Zach from Maryland. Thank you, Zach. With donations like his and other Patreon pilots that continue to contribute to the show, it makes it possible to continue to bring you great soaring content and helps to cover some of the costs. If you would like to help us out financially, you can go and support us at our website, SoaringTheSky.com. If you can't help us out financially, but you would like to help us out, we would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcast or on your favorite podcast app. This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. First on the podcast today, Daniel Sazen joins us to talk about his latest blog, A Tale of Two Air Masses. It's our SkySight tips and techniques segment. If you want to check out SkySight, you can do that absolutely free. Matt Scudder has given us a coupon code, all caps, Soaring the Sky. Daniel Sazen, welcome back to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you again. Glad to be here. So I was reading your blog, really was enjoying the, the most recent blog. I believe it's called A Tale of Two Air Masses. <laughs> Indeed. And there was a lot going on that day. So can you tell us about that? Well, sure. It uh, I, I like to go and write about uh, a number of things. And among them, it's some of my more memorable flights. And this was a very memorable, memorable flight for me uh, because in uh, the summertime, particularly in August, in uh, the Northeast, typically the, the soaring conditions tend to be pretty touch and go. And you know, if you're if you're able to stay up for a couple hours, and even if you don't go anywhere, that's usually you know a pretty good deal. And you're it's kind of hot and muggy, and you just sort of uh, sweat under you know. That 3,500, 4,000 feet, and that's just the way it is. And and this day kind of looked just looked looked like that. It certainly followed that was very much like that. And I just sort of came out and figured I'll just go and take the Duck Hawk uh, out and do a couple takeoffs and landings. Maybe try to stay up for a little bit, and that's that. But then as I got up and worked my uh, way up to cloud base at 3,200 feet MSL, it was it took me. 10 minutes to do that. You know, I just sort of plopped along on, over the ridge in a, in a cloud street and I looked over my shoulder and I figured, well, uh, the high ground looked like it ought to be working a little bit. It was just clouds were a little bit higher out there. And when I got out there, uh, I found a completely different air mass. And you know, while the, con- the forecast said that the conditions ought to be a little bit better over the high ground, um, 
you know that it, I, did, I, I didn't expect the cloud base to rise, you know, two thousand feet in the span of a couple hundred yards, <laughs> and and that was really really cool. So I, uh, when I connected with that, I recognized the convergence, and it was driven by a trough. And northwest of the the trough, there was uh, really really good air, and I just wandered off into into Pennsylvania and made a two hundred eighty mile flight. And, uh, you know, and flew for six hours when I really didn't expect that. And, you know, I've certainly had long flights and I've and things like that and flown long distances, but it's, it, you, you, it, it's particularly exciting when you get to explore new terrain and, and when you're doing it, when you're, uh, on days that you don't expect to be soaring like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Now you left from Blairstown, yep. New Jersey, is that right? Yep. Yep. That's, uh, Blairstown and uh, Aero Club Albatross, uh, that's kind of my home base. And that's where I've been flying for the past 15 years. And, uh, and, and you know, like I've gotten to explore the, the four corners of the task area <laughs> from Blairstown, you know. Right. <laughs> so, and uh, this was extending on that a little bit. Now, as I was reading, you were, you were heading west, I believe, right? Yeah. It, uh, and... Yeah, and heading west is pretty tri- is pretty interesting and a little tricky from Blairstown because uh, we are to the northwest is the Pocono Plateau and kind of the kind of to get a lay of the geography it's uh, you have uh, the Alleghenies and the the Poconos and the Catskills and they're all part of this kind of ancient mountain system uh, that uh, that eroded out. And you basically just have this, uh, the, the foundation of it is just this really hard block plateau. That's what's all that's left. And uh, not, much of it is, not much of it is cultivated uh, other than in some of, like the, some of the deeper valleys. So it's not very landable. And so it's uh, particularly tricky to normally head out into, into those places, but they typically have somewhat better left. And uh, on a day with less wind, and which is as it were, and um, and on days that you have pretty good cloud bases and preferably a high performance glider, uh, which the Dog Hawk certainly fits the bill on that front, uh, then you can take advantage of the better soaring conditions out in the uh, in these places. And so I really haven't flown all that much uh, into these areas. Uh, and if I have, it's always kind of been more on the on the edges and things like that. You know, not really penetrating too far into the high ground. But here, um, I, I worked across the Poconos very nicely. And uh, and going into the Allegheny Plateau, which is, you know, on the far side of the Allegheny Plateau is uh, Harris Hill, for example. Or if you go west along the plateau, you get to Ritz-Soaring, uh, Julian. And I've uh, never really successfully managed to work my way into the plateau before. I, I've if, any time I've ever gotten up there, the cloud base normally was too a little too low, and it was a little bit too windy. And um, and and the number of times I've been up there, I've normally had to been turned around, or I like once managed to get beyond it, and then went back over the plateau. So I, I had a tailwind and you know nine thousand foot thermals and things like that, and the left was better, obviously, but. Um, you know that, that that was the way I negotiated this big unlandable area. But here, the the conditions were quite good and quite high, and not windy, and so it made it possible to get in there. And uh, that was really really cool. You know, and the lift worked really really well. When you started out, um, I 
I believe when I was reading, you had like a half knot at one point. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. The, the I, yeah, I mean, it's like yeah. I released and I settled down a couple hundred feet and then started climbing and it took me ten minutes to get from right. twenty two hundred feet to thirty two hundred feet and that was cloud base, you know. My, my vent is all the way open and I'm sweating and, and it's like, yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? It's like, it's just one of those kinds of things like, and you know, the first like 45 minutes of the flight, you know, right. it was just like, you know, like how I'd expect a day in August. right And then, and, and then all of a sudden it's like someone, you know, flicks a switch and I'm in a completely different, uh, <laughs> completely different world. You know, it's like, well, and I, I'm just going along, and I figure, <laughs> right? hey, well, I guess I'll keep going, man. You know? So then it got <laughs> much better, and at some point, yeah. I, I think you said you were looking at the radar, and there was some a pretty rough thunderstorm. Now, was that back in Blairstown? Yeah. So, uh, well, I actually didn't know anything about it, which was, uh, you know, which made it all the more, much more entertaining for the folks back at home because, you know, like there, they, everyone there saw this big thunderstorm come up and, and then, and it just you know, like kind of raised, you know, just went right over the airport. And what happened uh, was the, where the two air masses came together, the Blair, you know, the New Jersey Blairstown air mass uh, was, much more uh, humid and hotter, uh, and than the um, well, I guess it wasn't so hot, but anyway, it, it, it was it, it caused there was a lot more moisture associated with it. So when that northwesterly uh, weak northwesterly good air dry air crashed into that air mass, it uh, just started you know like really kicking off. And when I left, there was a little shower that was that formed off of. Um, uh, off to the northeast of where I was in relation to the into the Poconos, and I didn't really think all too much of it. But that sucker just developed into a, a really, really serious thunderstorm. And the thing is, is because it was consistently fed in from uh, the northwest, it it really uh, it kept building and building, and it really didn't move all that fast. So the airport like was under heavy rain for a couple hours <laughs> under you know, with the storm. Oh, you know. Wow. And before the storm, uh, you know, before uh, you know, before the storm came, everyone landed. You know, they didn't. They, which is which is all good. But I, I, I mean, I was gone, man. I mean, I was heading the opposite direction. I didn't know anything about this like, happening. Daniel, you know? right? And it was like, well, hey, you know, like I was. And by the time, and the and the thing is, when I came around to come back. Um, the air mass, it, it was very uh, highly variable, and it was working very well over the high ground, but in the valleys, it, it really was pretty soft. And so I got a nice climb over the Alleghenies, and I was about 70 miles from home, and I almost had final glide even then, but that got me a long glide to the high ground just northwest of, uh, well, to, to the Poconos again, and the and the trough was still working at that point, and at that point, I picked up a, you know another climb and and I worked the uh, the trough back and forth for 50 miles which I've never done before out there at least and uh, so that was really cool and and then at the end of the day I had a dead glide coming back home you know from uh, from the northwest and that you know and like and as as is typical with um, uh, when a storm comes through uh, afterwards the when the ground is drenched the 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 um, the the ground really cools off and especially when you don't have all that much wind uh, it it just com it gets completely uh still i mean you're the air is, it had no movement to it <laughs> at all and 
you know, and it's one of these things uh, when you get to do a, a legitimate dead glide, you know, and I dialed the Bacridi back to zero, I had plenty of additional margin for altitude, but I figured I'm, no, I'm in no rush to come back at that point, right? And it's just the glider is perfectly smooth, the air is perfectly smooth, and you're just gliding along. It's, it's just a marvelous feeling, you know, you just don't get to experience that very often at the end of a day like that, so... So the the thunderstorm's pretty rough. So everyone's back at the airport, and they're the ones that are out there landing and probably trying to figure out where you were. And and then I guess when you finally land, is anyone there? Hardly anyone. <laughs> you know, like uh, <laughs> I mean, everyone like and everyone's scattered. Like uh, there was <laughs> one fellow, uh, uh, the what we call young Kevin. He. Uh, if he works at the the commercial operation, helps out there, and uh, has a has a one twenty six. Great fellow, uh, young guy, just like me. And uh, he was it, it just enjoying the the late even you know the later evening on on the porch of uh, the shack. And you know he came came on over and he told me everything that happened. And you know I got out of the glider and like the ground is all uh, squishy. You know I was like oh that, that's not expected. <laughs> and it's everywhere. You know it's just the airport soaking wet. You know. So you left, I believe, you said around noon, and then when did you land? Oh, I landed at a little after, a little after six. Wow! And then how how many miles did you go, or kilometers? I, I flew about two hundred eighty miles thereabouts, nice. wow. uh, and most of that in the latter part of the afternoon. You know, when uh, it was slow going in the earlier part of the day, you know, kind of working my way into the high ground and things like that. But then the moment. I turned around. It was glorious. I mean, up in the in the Alleghenies, like, like it, it, it was even much higher and better than I expected. Like I, I started climbing up, and I get to six thousand feet, and you know the cloud base was like seven thousand at the edge of it at the plateau, and that's really good. And I'm climbing, and the clouds are not any closer, and I'm the thermal picks up to like six, seven, eight knots, and I climb up to ninety five hundred feet. You know, wow. And, with that, you can you can get home pretty quick, you know, yeah. with, the, with the true airspeed and the tailwind. It's just like, hey, you know, that's everything you can ask for, you know. That set you up for a nice glide home. Yeah. So your blog, uh, Soaring Economist. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, I, I do enjoy that. And I'm going to put some show notes here so people can definitely check that out. Yeah. It, uh well, one of the things that people are always kind of perplexed by is, you know, why is it called the soaring economist, right? In a, in a sense, uh, and it's one of these kind of funny things. He's like, why am I talking about, you know, a soaring flight going off into the, you know, out, out into the into the the wilds of Pennsylvania on a blog like that? And uh, what ended up happening uh, was, I um, so there's a couple things. Number one is a number of years back, I started getting interested in in uh, things like behavioral economics and um, cognitive psychology and how it relates to decision making and those and in that kind of approach to psychology and economics for that matter it uh, it you it looks at things from a more of a quantitative kind of perspective and uh, and it's a more of a economist approach to things right and so that and in the beginning I, I was interested in Sort of, uh, I used it very much exclusively for just kind of jotting down my thoughts as to how, um, you know, like, soaring relates to, or rather, how certain kind of like kind of psychological economics concepts like uh, relate to relate to soaring and decision making, and um, and then you know with the, with the idea that some of those things can then kind of uh, work their way into other 
kind of bigger research interests. And at the same time, <clears throat> I would uh, occasionally write up my flights on Facebook with pictures and things like that. And um, in, in the, the blog, uh, it was uh, less, it was, like, it was on Blogspot or something like that, but it, w- it wasn't all that uh, sophisticated. And the I really didn't like Facebook for uh, sharing you know, like uh, long write-ups and you know lots of pictures and the things like that. So I, I just figured I just combined the two, <laughs> and so I did. And uh, and and my professional interests, you know, they kind of went more from absolute, you know, like like more like like more the strictly economics and things like that to more like more in the cognitive neuroscience psychology side of things, but hey man, the, the name stuck. And so here I am, but, uh, I think it, it still, it still works. It does. I, I enjoy the pictures that you put in it too. I mean, it was, you can kind of go along with the journey as you're telling the story and the pictures with it. That's for you even have a picture of the radar there that looked pretty intense. You said there, there was like maybe a tornado warning in that too. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, the, the folks that, had t- that took that picture, uh, he, that was done, that was done by a, a fellow that was looking at it uh, while <laughs> everything was going on. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't know anything about that when I was flying. You know, I, I don't have any radar or anything like that in the glider. And probably better you didn't, right? Hey, you know, it was like, hey, it's, 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 ignorance is bliss, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't have to deal with any thunderstorm. You know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You get back, the ground's wet. What happened, right? Yeah. Well. So, uh, hence uh, a tale of two air masses, right? Yeah, right. What were you flying? I know you mentioned it, but can you tell me a little bit about that glider? Sure. Um, I was flying one of three uh, Windward Performance Duck Hawks, and it's a an American built glider. Uh, and it's kind of a very special ship, and uh, it was built up in Oregon, and both are. Uh, was the the one who owned it for a while, and uh, Bill, in his infinite generosity, uh, decided to uh, basically give me the ship. He just straight up donated the glider to me last year. Wow, nice! And uh, you know, I mean, that's a, as they say uh, where I come from in Brooklyn. That's an offer you cannot refuse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and uh, and I was, and you know, and I, I've been flying it since and kind of uh, tuning it up and tweaking it and then flying it and thing and it's a wonderful 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 airplane uh, really 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 cool airplane what is the glide ratio uh, it hasn't been explicitly measured uh and so i am you know i i i need to preface that because it's one of these kinds of things you know when you when i look at the I mean the the theoretical uh in the manual is 50 to 1 uh at 60 63 knots or something like that um is it really i i I don't know (laughs) you know it's 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 really hard to measure absolute glider ratios like that i can say i mean i've flown it quite a bit when bill owned the glider because he let me fly it since 2014 and it goes as well as any other really good 15 meter glider um climbs well and where the glider, you know, the when you get into kind of wafty air, uh, an 18 meter glider with the big, you know, the longer tips and the winglets can just, you know, if they're flying along at 50, 55 knots, they just seem to kind of do a little bit better there. But at high speed, the the, the Duck Hawk just does unbelievably well. I mean, that's it. It, that, it was 
really, really, really designed around uh, going fast. And uh, and the other thing is, it's got electric flaps and uh, and it's uh, got automatic flaps. And one of the you know I'm not, I'm not, maybe the Nixus has automatic probably has automatic flaps, but uh, but aside from that, it's the you know that in the Morgan Sparehawk R, but the the automatic flaps make a meaningful difference. And between the the wing and the and the uh, the airfoil and the and the flaps, uh, it it handles dynamic air really well. So if you're going to go and fly along in a in a cloud street or in a convergence line, or maybe on a weaker ridge, uh, a strong ridge you don't care really, but not only on a weaker ridge, and it pulls more energy out of the gusts and. Um, and if, you, if you're flying in a long line for a long time, uh, just the flaps being consistently in the perfect position and adjusting correctly for each acceleration uh, that's incurred upon the glider, that uh, makes a meaningful impact <clears throat> on the performance. And of all the things that I mean, the glider has a lot of really, really cool stuff and a lot of really uh, interesting engineering ideas. And th- and th- Greg did a, was just a you know, brilliant guy. Uh, but of all the things that, you know, that I think that it demonstrated that I, as far as I'm concerned, I think the automatic flaps are a huge, huge win on the glider. So you said they, they adjust themselves then as you're flying? Yeah, it uh, basically, so in uh, the, the flaps, they're electric. Uh, so there, there's a, and the way it works is you, uh, the, the ailerons are, they're flapperons. So if I move the stick, you know, left and right, then it just moves the whole trailing edge of the wing up and down. And okay. the uh, the flaps, uh, you know, we're really uh, nifty. Where how they work is there's just a basically a, a, a big servo and a piston. Like I guess it's a, a, it kind of looks like a piston. I mean, maybe it's a, 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 a someone who's an electrical engineer could be maybe more precise in calling what the motor thing is. But uh, what it does is it just goes up and down. And when and what it serves to do is it just pulls the uh, the push rods in closer or further apart. So, and that's how the flaps work. It just, you know, that when the, when the motor extends out, then it just, you know, like it, it pushes the, the flaps down and the, and then, and it doesn't interrupt the, the movement of the stick at all and, and vice versa. And so it's actually a, it's a pretty straightforward, simple system there. But then, uh, the Morgan's idea as, as far as I'm, as far as I know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it was Morgan that developed the the auto flaps. Was well, if it's electric anyway, then all you need to do is hook up a, you know, a, a couple sensors and a computer that knows what the the airfoil, what the the polar is at any given uh, speed and and g loading for to infer angle of attack. And so it's got it, so basically it's got a, a box that takes in a pitot connection and it's got a couple accelerometers and. Um, and uh, and there and Morgan coded in an Arduino board that basically specifies that at any given speed uh, and at any given um, uh, uh, g loading that this is where the flaps need to be and you know then the flaps are basically con- you know like they hunt around for the optimal spot until they get there. Wow, that's that's impressive. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's really really cool, uh, and and and, the, and it's actually kind of interesting because I um, I learned I, the the Duck Hawk is the first flapped glider I've ever flown, and 
the the they got the system fully working in 2014. So I mean they had a they, they, it was in development for a little while and they had to make adjustments and things like that. But they they uh, they got it working uh, when I got showed up in California in Montague at a, at a 15 meter nationals and and then i uh got to fly it kind of before and after they put the system in and and then uh, only after then did i fly any other manual flapped gliders you know like the ls6 and the uh, ls3 and uh, the lag 17 and so i i can say with pretty good confidence that i'm probably the only person that's ever learned to f- learn to how to use manual flaps by virtue of watching how a computer does it <laughs> So, right. you know it uh, and it's it's actually pretty cool the the really big difference actually uh is the the flaps uh they mirror the motion on the stick to a certain to a large degree so when you pull back uh you not like not only are you slowing down but you load up the glider so you you know you make the glider go to 1.5 to 2.5 g whatever you know however hard you pull into a thermal for instance and uh, and the thing is, is when you incur that load on the glider, that very significantly changes the angle of attack. And the thing that a lot of people don't realize is flaps are significantly affected by angle of attack, not by airspeed. So they'll have like a chart that tells them at, at these airspeeds that this is what the flap setting ought to be, right? Well, not so fast. It's actually, uh, it's you know that when you when you pull back, you know that 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 adjusts quite a bit uh, because your angle of attack is quite a bit higher than if you were you know just cruising along stably at a given speed. And so when you pull, and especially if you pull you know pretty uh, pretty firmly, when you do that, that actually greatly minimizes the drag associated with uh, these kinds of maneuvers. So if you're uh, I mean, certainly, if you if you're smooth and you just make very gentle pulls, then you know, then it really doesn't make all that much of a difference. Uh, the, the 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 flap speeds are pretty consistent. But if you if you make a pretty hard pull, if you don't pull the flaps at the same time in a flap glider, uh, you're giving up quite a lot, uh, especially if you're doing this a lot. And I, I learned that you know quite distinctly by observing how the the flaps worked in the Duck Hawk. Oh, interesting! Wow. Yeah, but it, you know it's cool ship <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah it sounds like it wow well daniel thank you for sharing uh, your blog my pleasure I, I really enjoy the latest one tale of two air masses and definitely be checking back with you again and yeah. and hear your next blog i'm looking forward to what that's going to be about Sounds good. Uh, actually, uh, I'm the the thing that I'm working on right now is uh, is uh, more of a th- going back to a theoretical post. Actually, it uh, it's on how you know go, goes goes back into uh, risk management in, in a way and uh, how to manage uh, your your strategic reserves and you know in, when it comes to energy and uh, you know both. Uh, physical in the sense of a glider, you know, and uh, psychological, physiological in terms of your, yourself as a pilot, as, a, as an athlete. And so maybe in a, in a, in about a week or something like that, you'll, you'll see that come out. All right. Looking forward to hearing about it. All right. Hi, it's Natalie Flygirl Kelly. And Fly Alyssa. We are female pilots, aviation lovers, and hosts of the podcast, Cockpits and Cocktails. We use this podcast as a way of sharing our journeys in aviation and allowing other females in aviation to share their amazing, inspiring stories as well. Please give us a listen and join us for this fun, informative podcast with adventure and humor weaved in. Blue skies. Cheers. 
We will join our next guest pilot next, but first our soaring safety segment with Ines Engelhardt from Berlin, Germany. We all know that flying can be dangerous and risky, of course. Uh, also, all the gliders, they tell themselves, oh, driving a car on the highway, it's even more dangerous than gliding. But you have to know, you have to be trained all the time to think about safety. If you start in season of flying again, then you have to think about safety, all the rules, all the, all the checks you have to do first before you start with your gliders. You have to, you have, to have the knowledge about the flying and the air traffic. Take your time to be prepared and stay uh, trained all the time and therefore that's I think it's a good thing to fly safe. If you'd like to check out the rest of Inessa's story you can check out episode 51 Strong Thermals Big Sink. If you'd like to sponsor our Soaring Safety segment you can contact me at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Todd Chapman joins us today from the Central Coast Soaring Club just to the north of his home in Sydney, Australia. He just started gliding a few months ago and recently achieved his first solo. However, this comes off the back of a long career in leadership roles in the airline industry, as well as some power flying in the 90s. Todd reflects on why he has taken up this new interest and how gliding could really see a surge of fresh interest during COVID as many professional pilots are looking to scratch their aviation itch while grounded. Join us now for Todd Chapman on Soaring the Sky. Todd Chapman, welcome to Soaring the Sky. I'm so happy to have you today. I've been talking to you for a little bit, emailing back and forth. So here we are. Great to be here, Chuck. Where are you flying out of? I'm flying, I'm in Australia, and I'm flying out of a little club that's just to the north of Sydney. It's called the Central, Clo- Central Coast Soaring Club. It's actually at a place called Mangrove Mountain. And when we think of mountains in Australia, we're not necessarily thinking of, uh, you know, European Alps or the Himalayas. Uh, Mangrove Mountain is literally just a thousand foot above sea level, just inland from the coast, to, as I say, to the north of Sydney. And it's uh, this sort of uh, rural rural farmland area surrounded by a national park. And uh, it's a strip that's around about, uh, from memory, I think it's about 1,100 metres total length, north-south orientation, but it's kind of shaped like a banana. So there is a, there's different run, runway orientations if you're landing to the south than if you're landing to the north uh, by around about uh, 20 degrees offset. Uh, and included in that banana shape, there's a nice little crest in the middle. So you can't see one end to the other uh, when you're uh, actually at the northern end looking south or vice versa. Included on that, just like the shape of a banana, I guess, you've also got the little stub, which is the stem at the top of the banana, which is another short couple of hundred metres that almost orientates itself almost east-west at the northern end. So it's an unusual shape, and uh, that's the Central Coast Club. It's um, obviously a fully grass strip, and it's surrounded by trees uh, immediately around it, and and every uh, every boundary is actually uh, uh, trees on either side, which does mean that you've got a degree of turbulence when you have, that you've got to contend with when you have uh, crosswinds or uh, decent winds, in addition to the other challenges of the strip. But 
what I like about it, Chuck, is that it's close to home, 37 minutes drive from my house exactly. And, and uh, that sort of accessibility is pretty cool for me. Yeah, that makes it very nice. It does. In actual fact, with respect to options that you have around Sydney, and Sydney's a big city, it's you know, 4 million people. With respect to options that people have for gliding as a sport, there's, uh, there's, I guess there's three. Our one is the one that I've just described. There's another one that's down to the southwest uh, at a place called Camden, uh, Southern Cross Gliding Club or Soaring Club. And there is another one uh, out to the far west, which is uh, at an Air Force base called Richmond. And so, um, yeah, anybody in Sydney would have to do, unless you're lucky enough to live close like I do to the northern one, for most of the city of the 4 million people, everybody, uh, most people would be up for a decent drive in order to go gliding. So how did your aviation adventure begin? Uh, my, my aviation, ad- okay, so I reckon most of your podcast would suffer from the same condition that I suffer from, which is having an aviation itch that needs to be scratched. And even as a little kid, uh, I, I inherited that itch off my uncle, my uncle Peter. It started to manifest itself. I, my earliest memory of it manifesting itself, I was born in 1967, and I think in 1974, I, if, I'm not, if my years are correct, uh, the Concorde did a promotional tour of the world. They were trying the the, um, the British and the French governments were trying to uh, drum up interest to sell Concords. And I remember as a little kid, I lived in uh, the at the time I was living at uh, literally on the harbour, actually um, down here in Sydney, not too far from where the airport is. And I remember staying in the backyard all day because my parents had read in the newspaper that the Concorde was visiting that day and I desperately wanted to see Concorde come in. And for me, that's that's the first memory I have of the manifest, manifestation uh, of the uh, of the interest. And uh, regrettably, as it would turn out, the Concorde would actually land from the south and not go over my house. So I didn't actually see it, which is the other memory. But um, I had I was one of those people that uh, was uh, you in perpetually interested in anything to do with aviation, whether it was uh, craning out of the window when you were lucky enough to go on a flight in those early days, whether it was uh, seeing friends or family off, I would always ask if I could go to the airport to pick them up or drop them off. Whether it was an air show that you heard about that was coming up, you'd be pestering your dad and your mum to take you to the air show. Uh, whether it was uh, whether it was you're on a family holiday and you see the word airport or aerodrome on a road sign and you're just craning your neck to see the action, whatever the action may be, whether it was spending your pocket money buying initial building initially, I guess plastic kits and then working through to uh, balsa wood kits that would fl- fly and I couldn't afford radio control, so I was flying control line kits back then. Uh, every way I could uh, manifest my flying interest back in those early days, I was manifesting. As the uh, as I grew older, um, I I in fact I, I when I was a late teenager, I was lucky enough to have two flights with uh, the my best mate at the time. His um, his mum got remarried, and she would remarry a guy called Neil Fisher, who was very big in gliding Australia at the time, and he took us out on two occasions. And I was very lucky, lucky enough to fly in a Blanick uh, back in the 80s, uh, just on two flights, on two, two separate occasions. But it really caught my interest. As you would imagine, all it did was actually deepen my interest, I should say, because the interest was already well and truly there. 
which is probably why he took took uh, most me out. But uh, as the years would progress, I remember when I left school, I, I actually left school and just um, I didn't connect the ability to earn a living with the uh, with this white hot passion that I had. I don't know why I didn't. I just didn't. And I did all sorts of jobs for around about 10 years, working on boats in Sydney Harbour, uh, removing uh, removing asbestos out of buildings, uh, you know, a painter, uh, working as a bricklayer, uh, working as a, a landscaper, working in welfare, looking after um, uh, disabled people and poor people, all, all, sorts of, uh, all sorts of different jobs. And then at the age of 26, when I was, I was just about to marry my wife, Jo, I thought, oh, well, it's, uh, I better start to get serious here and think about what I'm going to do long term. And that was the time that I thought, um, well, I, I made the connection actually, Chuck, and I thought, well, I, I really should, if I was smart, I'd actually, I'd actually do for a job what I'm actually passionate about and have this burning desire to participate in, which is aviation. Like, like a lot of people, actually, the road to the road to uh, starting to participate in aviation, and I'm talking about aviation as a career here, um, they immediately think, as I did, that therefore you will you'll want to be a pilot. So I actually started to do power flying, and I did it for two years. I did a diploma of aeronautics at, uh, concurrently with learning to fly power aircraft. I got 170 hours, like well and truly, you know, got my uh, private license, and I was chugging away towards getting my commercial license but what i found was that um the more that i was flying my solo hours getting ready to sit my commercial test and then looking obviously subsequently once you get your commercial license then uh as i guess the career path was for australians in the mid 90s that if you wanted to fly commercially you would basically take that single engine power license and then try to get single engine hours and accumulate hours then if you're lucky enough to get enough, you'd then get your first twin piston job and then you'd, you'd get enough twin piston hours to try and get your next twin turbine job, maybe a pressurised aircraft. And then, you know, you'd have to... This would be a couple of years before you really were eligible even to uh, start to participate in any recruitment that the airlines might be doing. So I was getting, I guess, more and more exposure to this, the notion of flying as a, a single pilot uh, and uh, as I was getting my hours up, and I just found I found that the single pilot environment, the cockpit environment, really, Chuck, it probably wasn't uh, my my the best of me was not going to be found in, in flying an aeroplane for a job. I certainly didn't really enjoy the highly uh, disciplined, repetitive nature of the cockpit, and I much preferred, I guess, what would subs subsequently become an alternative career on the ground where I was able to exercise some of the uh, uh, the other parts of my brain, particularly those around, I guess, I'm a high extrovert, so working with people and also the um, the business aspects of working on the ground in, a, in the aviation context. So after a few years of uh, just getting those that time up and I guess learning that lesson uh, around the flying wasn't for me, I then made a mid-course correction and started to pursue career an aviation career on the ground initially i worked for a little airline called hazelton airlines uh it was fantastic little uh outfit uh we operated saabs sub 340s and metro 23s around regional new south wales and uh, down a little bit into victoria here in australia uh, and uh, a high camaraderie incredible sense of i guess underdog uh 
you know, faithfulness to the to the brand by the people. After a couple of years there, I was lucky enough to uh, be offered a job in Qantas, uh, which is uh, Australia's uh, national carrier. Imagine most people would have heard of Qantas Airways or Qantas Airlines on this podcast. And I've been at Qantas now. Uh, in fact, I clicked over uh, 20 years uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And I've worked in all sorts of different jobs inside Qantas. I've, had a fant- I've had a, enjoyed a fantastic career. I've uh, been very blessed, actually. Worked in pretty much every every department uh, up to you know um, senior levels in the uh, in what is a Australia, one of Australia's uh, uh, greatest brands, and I think one of the world's greatest airlines, the second oldest airline in the world. And everybody that works for Qantas is extremely passionate about Qantas, uh, and uh, it brings a huge amount of energy just working for for such a I guess a prominent brand within Australia. And that's where I am. And so I've, for the last, uh, if you like, 25 years from when I started learning to fly uh, uh, for those first few years, then Hazleton and now 20 years at Qantas, I've been very, very blessed that uh, my aviation itch has been scratched every single day. And uh, there's uh, not a day that I go to work where I don't feel energized and excited about what I've got to, what I'm working on or what I've, the, the, what I get to do, frankly, I also look back on many frequent occasions through my career and to have what I call yourself pinch yourself moments where, you know, when I was a kid and I would dream about the sort of stuff that I would like to do, now as an adult, uh, the amount of things that I, I, I get to do and I've participated in as a, as a leader in Qantas, I just go, oh my goodness, I can't believe the kid that was just in the backyard looking up at the sky waiting for Concorde is now, you know, for example, um, bringing aircraft out of Victorville and, and bringing them into service in Australia, uh, negotiating uh, engine deals uh, with with Rolls Royce, working with uh, working on uh, some strategic opportunities on how we do uh, heavy maintenance on our aircraft, working in crisis management on on various things such as how we're going to manage COVID, uh, all the things that I've had to had the opportunity to participated in lead in Qantas has just been it's just been fantastic and as I say uh, I've had a very very blessed career. Absolutely being able to work in aviation must be very exciting. It is mate it is uh, it, people are uh, there's just a uh, there's a general high level of energy you, you find that people you work with people uh, the, the way that um, a lot of us at my job talk about it is that we're all in a sense um you'd end up being a little bit of a brand ambassador. In in Australia, it seems that everybody has got an opinion on Qantas. You'll go to a barbecue and have the ine- inevitable barbecue conversations and uh, everybody has got a you know an idea of how they think Qantas should be run or they'll give you some feedback, good or bad, on a flight that they've had recently or they wish Qantas was going to Rome again and why aren't we going to Rome, etc. It's one of those, It's we're like, a you know, being a Qantas employee, you're a bit of a lightning rod to always have these uh, conversations at barbecues. And uh, as a consequence, I think uh, every Qantas employee ends up being a little bit of a brand ambassador wherever you go, not just at work, of course, but even off work. So what brought you back to the glider port after all those years? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. So... So I may, as everybody in the podcast would be aware, uh, the the world of aviation is currently under a huge amount of stress, and I've actually um, I've had the opportunity 
Uh, I'll actually be leaving Qantas at the end of uh, the calendar year by choice. Um, so my 20 years, as I said, uh, just clicked over the other day. And I think it's time for me to explore new, new horizons uh, that uh, may exist in my career. And, but I'm very conscious that I have that aviation itch that I need to scratch every day. So um, as I sort of work towards a, a, a time in my career where I may not be working in aviation because, well, frankly, there's not a lot of recruitment going on in aviation at the moment, not necessarily a lot of opportunity. So therefore, I can't, I don't have the, uh, the guarantee that my next role will be somewhere involved involving uh, the industry. I thought, well, I really should do something as a hobby and an interest that satisfies that. And I looked around and I thought, um, uh, well, you know, funny enough, funny enough, Chuck, the, um, the, the notion of power flying, it didn't really appeal to me that much. And I, I, I really can't work out why, but uh, power flying, uh, it didn't, the notion of going power flying, you know, in a single engine, you know, Cessna Piper or whatever, it didn't really float my boat. But what really piqued my interest was the notion of doing some gliding. So I, and I knew this club that I've now joined, I knew it existed because in fact, some, some of my relatives uh, live not too far from it. So when we would visit those relatives, I, I would see the airfield and, you know, see the, uh, see the gliders in action. So I knew, I knew where it was and I also knew how close it was to my house, which is pretty close. So I thought, actually, I, I'm going to give uh, give gliding a go. And this, by the way, this story only goes back around about uh, four months. So we're not dealing with. Uh, I'm not. Pro I'm not professing for a second that I've got uh, anywhere near the experience in gliding that, frankly, most of your listeners would have. Uh, absolutely, the opposite. If anything, I'm an enthusiastic um, newcomer to this particular arm of aviation. But I, I, I. Gave these guys a ring. Uh, they were really, really lovely and welcoming. They said, yeah, we're flying today. This was on a particular Saturday about four months ago. They said, yeah, yeah, rock on up. So uh, I, I came up that day and just basically met with a, a bunch of like-minded people that were, you know, uh, highly, uh, highly energized and passionate about the sport of gliding. Uh, had, I think I had two flights that day, if I'm not mistaken, I, and I joined the club that afternoon. Uh, because I nice. thought, I'll, yeah, I thought, I oh, will. Why, why, why waste any time? I'll, I'll just, uh, I'll just uh, sign up right today and pay my money, and uh, and I was away. Um, oh, and the other thing I should mention about, I failed to mention actually about the uh, Central Coast Soaring Club. It we're a winch only club. I should have mentioned that actually. Uh, so that banana shape. Oh, winch only. Yeah, banana shape. Yeah, the 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 reason for that is um, I did mention that the club itself it's surrounded by trees on every side but there is some uh there is some rural uh activity that goes on with uh, small farms etc and so consequently the the actual land is owned by the council so the local government and there is uh, a degree of uh how would you put it um community relationships that need to be appropriately managed and so having powered aircraft chugging in and chugging out on uh, on the weekends would probably not work with those relationships plus there'd be i think a level of a new level of formality uh, associated with getting powered aircraft in and out of the site with respect to regulatory requirements that um again the council would potentially have on a, on a continuous basis the council would have some concerns about so consequently yeah it's a it's a winch only it's a winch only club 
Yeah, and without the winch, you obviously wouldn't be a club there at all. That doesn't sound like. No, well, without the winch, you'd probably have to use self-powered gliders, which again have a degree of noise that, if used right. on a continuous yeah. basis, we do have actually one. We have a Demona uh, available in the club, but the uh, it's that's not used, and you know, frankly, it's a lot lot. It'd be a lot quieter than a say something like a Pawnee taking off twenty times a day, as you'd appreciate. So, how was that first launch there at the club? That's a really great question. It's funny you obviously asked that question because you. You're there's something about everybody's first winch launch. Um, I or the it was in a uh, a Pukatek, which is a little old Polish a Polish um, aluminium glider, uh, which is one of two that the club has got. So I remember sitting in that, sitting in the front seat, and you know, as you'd appreciate for someone who who's flown a lot in small aircraft, like you know Cessna one five two, for example, the, the cockpit of a glider feels smaller yet again. Uh, you actually slot yourself in there. It's like you put a glider on. You don't sit in it. You put it on. Um, and uh, the you know the I'm a I'm a big frame guy. I'm a hundred kilos, six foot three. So you know I'm filling the space. And uh, the, the the canopy goes down, and the canopy just sort of nestles. Just you can almost feel it on the top of your head. So you're really right inside it. And the the cable is connected. You hear the sort of rattling of the ring. Uh, and um, then you then you had that, that inevitable waiting sort of uh, thing between ten to twenty seconds for the cables uh, to be the, the the slack to be taken up, and then so it's all this anticipation and all your sensations are building. I remember it really clearly when the when the acceleration occurred. The first five meters are quite gentle because I think the the person who's driving the club is just still continue continuing to feel the tension. But then the acceleration just comes on like you wouldn't believe. And you're airborne, oh, I'm estimating, within about just potentially as quick as 50 metres, which, again, is uh, extremely fast. You accelerate horizontally just a little bit for, further and then uh, then obviously put the p- person flying, and I wasn't flying this first, sect- uh, this first takeoff, obviously. My, my instructor, Graham, was in the, uh, in the back seat behind me. And uh, then the next thing you know, w- within a few short seconds, you, it feels like you're going up vertically. Obviously, you're not going up vertically. We know that, you know, physics say that that's not the case. But I can tell you right now, it feels vertical. Have you ever done a winch launch, Chuck? No, no, I have not. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. It sounds exhilarating. It is exhilarating. There's nothing like your first one. And, and uh, I, the, wor- the worst bit on this first one for me was that the ring... Uh, the ring connected uh, the ring that was obviously in the tow hook underneath, uh, which uh, un- in the Pukatex probably approximately under the rear pilots, uh, but it's pretty close to the CFG actually. The ring actually uh, it, it re it, it, how would I put it? It actually rotated just probably about ten degrees, just as it settled. The ring settled as the uh, as the glider actually um, was going through the climb phase, so it made this it made this really loud clunk sound. Uh, oh. Just as the ring moved, it was all safe. The ring did all right, and yeah. and like as to someone who's for the, all the sensations in you, you go, oh my goodness! I I literally thought to myself, oh my goodness, is that the spar starting start to give way? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the the uh, the scenery as you're going up, you, you know, you're going up 55 knots, pretty close to vertical. I, I'm not. Pre- it's not. I know it's not ninety degrees, but you're going up very, very steep at at uh, a very decent speed, fifty five odd knots. 
So the scenery falls away uh, extremely quickly. It's just amazing. And then then you actually, um, I presumed you'd actually get some sort of zero G at the top. And again, as you go over the top, and, and I was surprised that the actual, uh, that last, you know, 20% of the whole launch experience is actually real, done well. It's actually relatively anticlimactic. You get pretty close to the, uh, get pretty close to where the, the tug is, you know. You've got probably another 100 metres of horizontal difference between you and the tug. Uh, you, you, you've now pretty much leveled out. You've given away all your climbing. Uh, it's time to let go of the cable. Uh, you lower the nose so the cable's not too tense. Pull the cable release, and uh, down she goes. And all of a sudden, it, it it becomes a lot quieter as well because you're sort of you know holding the nose up, getting your speed back, and settling back in at least the Pukatek, a nice gentle you know forty five odd knots. Uh, and uh, which is again a lot less noisy than the climb because the wind is now uh, the the uh, airspeed is now uh, reduced. Yeah, exactly. And it's all over, and it's just all over and done. It's it's uh, it's so quick and uh, ex- as you say, I think the word exhilarating. I completely describe it as that. Uh, when you start to do more and more, and I, when I say you know sound like I'm talking my experience up, please, for, I'm absolutely not. I've probably only done about twenty. Um, around about 20 winch launches in my total career so far. But uh, after a while, you do start to feel, you, you never become used to them completely, but you certainly don't, uh, you don't become, you, the nervousness that you have about them actually drops off very quickly. And that little clunk with the ring settling, I notice happens more quite often. Uh, <laughs> and you just go, oh, that's, that's just the ring settling. I don't need to worry about that anymore. Wow. So, so you do all that, right? And, and then at the end of the day, you're like, yeah, I'm going to sign up for this. Yeah, exactly. I, well, it just it ticked, it ticked the, every box for me. It was uh, the club, the really nice, really lovely group of people. Um, uh, the culture is, is really uh, it's fantastic, actually. Uh, it's um, it's the, oh, the, I should mention the other thing that really appealed to me about gliding over the power flying is I, I, over the years I've also liked to dabble a little bit in sailing and uh and i'm talking about little dinghies actually rather than super yachts and i just love the idea and this is the essence of gliding over power for me i love the idea that you've you rely on totally rely on nature to make yourself successful just like when you're sailing a, a, a yacht the the notion that you're actually connecting into energy that originally comes from the sun turns into uh, you know some form of energy in the air whether it's thermals or horizontal wind which obviously creates ridge lift or waves all of which is just energy conversion that you've got to participate in in order to either sustain flight or go from a to b i i really love that connection with nature and the fact that you've actually got to think about and concentrate on your environment in order to, to participate in that conversion. I know I've probably made it sound a little bit over-scientific. If anything, it's more artistic. But I, uh, I, love, I love the notion of that. And frankly, I also love the way that the gliders aerodynamically, I, just, I love the optics of the, of the gliders because they've got to um, have, to, uh, they've absolutely take a new level of streamlining that you obviously uh, can't, necessarily uh, do in a powered aircraft because you 
got a bloody engine on the thing or alternatively you don't need to be as fussy with it with a powered aircraft because frankly you've got an engine on the thing so you're not necessarily looking to uh, you know get everything you can to reduce drag and improve your you know to get the optimize your ld uh on a powered aircraft and i love the way in order to to get the best participation in the energy that's available in the atmosphere the glider ends up with this beautiful optical look of just streamlining and uh, i think that's a really nice element of the sport as well it looks pretty it does and you know even the gliders that have been around for 20 years they look like they just came out of the hangar and they were just built. It, it's like they were ahead of their time. When I when I first time I saw one of the glass ships, I was like, oh. wow, "How old is that? What's twenty? It can't be twenty years old." I know. In actual fact, um, I was up at um this. We had this gliding camp two weeks ago, a place called Gloucester in New South Wales. Um, it's actually hosted by uh, my club, uh, but other clubs uh, we all get together at this place called Gloucester, which is about three or two and a half hours north of Sydney. And uh, well, just quickly about Gloucester, actually, because um, it's a little interesting story there. So uh, Gloucester is um, inland around about oh, three quarters an hour inland from the coast. Uh, Latitude-wise, as I say, it's about two and a half hours north of Sydney. And it's actually the uh, base of um, the uh, these uh, one of the um, coldest uh, parts of Australia, which is not in the um, Australian Alps. I'm not sure if you're aware, actually, but Australians, Australia's got this area called the Australian Alps. Uh, and in actual fact, um, I believe our, our Australian Alps cover more surface area than the Swiss Alps do. And indeed, our Australian Alps even have snow, but they're, but they're nowhere near as, <laughs> near as spectacular as the Swiss Alps. But we do have our own ski season and we do have our own ski fields but they're very modest so don't get me wrong but outside of that uh, we do have small pockets of australia that experience snow and the area near gloucester is also one of those pockets the other thing about australia is uh, australia is one of the most ancient parts of the it's one of the most uh, i guess it's the continent of australia is part of i guess uh, original gondwana land and uh, from um when the globe was basically just one continent millions and millions and billions of years ago. And Australia has been largely unaffected by other continents bumping into it compared to, for example, Asia, where India bumped into it and there, obviously the Himalayas were created, etc. So Australia is a, a relatively flat, massively flat country. And the mountains that we do have are consequently quite eroded. So therefore, it's unusual in Australia to get uh, vertical peaks. Sorry, yeah, vertical cliff faces, or very even cliff faces that have a very steep angle. So consequently, uh, you, there isn't um, you know areas all around Australia where you can participate in ridge flying. It's, it's not necessarily um, as common as you you might think in a country of our size. Obviously, we are thermal heaven. Uh, because of our, our arid nature, but yeah, ridge flying is not not that common. But around about um, uh, in the in the 80s, uh, one of our club members was driving through Gloucester and noticed that there was this airstrip, and adjacent or even parallel to the airstrip, they also noticed that there was this six six kilometre long uh, ridge that rose up around about two thousand foot foot above the surrounding ter terrain and the legend has it at the time of year that they, this is what was explained to me anyway when I was up at Gloucester which I think is a really nice story 
the individual who was also driving at this time also noticed that there was a prevailing wind from the west, which then he go the, he looked at it and goes, actually, there'd probably be some good ridge lift on this particular hill. Uh, and the the uh, the airstrip being right next to the ridge is perfectly co-located. The airstrip was um, for the Gloucester Aero Club, which is a power club um, traditionally. Anyway, so it lent, lent, lent to this individual organising a camp, and the camp has been run every year ever since. People just tow their gliders in, assemble them on site. Uh, a, a powered aircraft, uh, sorry, a tug, I should say, comes in and provides the aero tows. And, uh, yeah, and it's uh, a great experience for everybody to uh, try their hand at ridge soaring. Uh, in an environment where there's incredibly high predictability in August of the westerly winds, and because, as I say, because of the shape of the ridge, it then creates a, a great opportunity for some uh, easy-to-find lift, which is what I did two weeks ago as well, and that was great fun. It was really good fun. Oh, nice. That's your first experience in ridge lift. Yeah, except for, ironically, when I was a kid flying those models, I, want, I, I suggested that I was into control line, but I did have a two-channel radio control aircraft as well. And ironically, I was actually doing slope soaring, as we called it back in the 1980s. I was doing a little bit of slope soaring with my with my model. So I, I did have an understanding, at least from model flying, around the principles involved. But, yeah, that was my first experience in actually okay, yeah. Fly, yeah, flying actually in, uh, in r- proper ridge soaring. In actual fact, the 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 lift you can get there, it's it's quite impressive. The I think last year, uh, the one of the uh, one of the gliders actually got up to eighteen thousand feet uh, above the um, because a nice little wave developed, and they uh, managed to ride the wave all the way up to uh, eighteen thousand feet before they came down. So there is the opportunity to get some uh, some decent altitude out of some of the conditions. Oh, yeah. Nice. So that that's well, what's the elevation of that small ridge there? Uh, the the ground level is a thousand foot AGL, uh, and then the ridge itself okay. is yeah it's roughly three thousand from memory. So it's only the ridge itself. The ridge itself is less than it might go up to two thousand five hundred above the ground. So yeah, the, it's certainly less than a kilometer off the prevailing terrain. So it's the ridge itself is not particularly high, but the uh, it, there is other uh, there is other mountains. Um, that are available in you know twenty k's away as well. So the combination of the terrain can, if the right wind conditions, can produce a a nice wave. I've been, uh, as has been explained to me from the stories that I heard from the previous year. So what were you doing down at Lake Keep It? I know you were down there for a little bit. Oh yeah, sure. That's actually how we connected. Wasn't it? it was just that Keep It email. Um, so Keep It offer offer a. Uh, one there's an upside and I guess a downside with the uh, with the uh, winch launching in my home club. In, in winter, off a winch launch, uh, you don't necessarily uh, have a high likelihood of uh, hitting a thermal every time you you uh, you launch. So consequently, a lot of the winch launches in in uh, in winter off uh, my home club end up, end up in being a you know a six or seven minute experience. A sled ride until you sort of come back down. And additionally, uh, I guess um, we are, you know, there is a, a degree to which the aircraft that we're operating with the Puka Tech, obviously they're not, they don't have self-sustaining engines either, and they're old training aircraft too, so they're not necessarily going to get any more than six or seven minutes off a, you know, even a sixteen hundred foot AGL uh, release, and that's cool. Also, when I was learning, I've only been in, back in the sport since June. 
uh, I think it was June that I actually, that first flight was. So, gosh, what are we in now later? Yeah, so it's like three months, actually. Um, so I, um, I obviously, June down here in Australia, we're in the depths of winter as well. So my entire gliding experience has actually been in winter. Obviously, there's not as much available energy in the atmosphere. So consequently, I was looking at the, the timeline of my predicted acquired experience and how long it would take me to reach solo. And I thought, wow. With uh, two two flights a day, when I go flying, because obviously everybody we're all taking turns and helping each other out, and uh, with two flights a day, it, it's going to take me a long time to go solo. Arguably, um, I was potentially an impatient fellow, but I thought, um, well, is there a way that I can actually fast track this? And I had a look look around, and I uh, found out that um, uh, up at Lake Keep it, they offered a uh, they offer a one week intense training course. The idea is you. Is live in Lake Keep. It's around about four and a half hours from my house here, uh, and entirely inland, uh, uh, northwest. Anyway, you basically uh, pay a, a deposit, it covers your accommodation, and then you live in, and uh, you have access, obviously, to the club facilities, which are fantastic, actually, as is the accommodation. Um, yeah, day starts with a daily briefing. Uh, you, then you uh, hit the uh, hit the flying, and the flying is through uh, an aerotope. And there's probably there's probably three advantages. Firstly, um, you, you're doing this day in and day out for a week, so the you very quickly build up muscle memory and momentum, as compared to learning to fly by you know one or two little drips every weekend. You you know obviously drinking from a fire hose when it comes to the learning experience. The second one is compared to the winch flying, being able to aerotow. For, uh, at that early stages is very helpful uh well, it was very helpful for me because you can obviously choose your release height and even if you don't get any lift you're getting more than a six or seven minute flight so there's more learning opportunities uh per launch uh with time in the air and the uh, the third thing is uh, that even the third advantage of keep it um is that uh, even in winter as i would subsequently find there is actually there is actually decent lift around i can only imagine what it would be like in summer but the um there is lift around so uh, you can actually you know uh, if it's a little bit harder to find i guess but you, you're able to stay up there uh for uh, you know decent periods of time while continuing to learn again off the same off the same launch that's why i looked into and subsequently chose keep it as the experience so because i wanted to fast track and get myself to solo just to build up momentum rather than just that little drip feed alternative and indeed yeah so um my experience in keep it yeah i did solo which was um really really satisfying and i guess it's not everyone that could say that they they soloed twice in their career but yeah naturally soloed a powered airplane but soloing soloing a glider chuck is is quite a different experience and so I'll count that as a, my second uh, my second time that I've soloed. What is your local club there doing to help the sport of soaring? Well, it's funny you should say that. Um, I was actually talking to our chief flying instructor about that the other day about what you know what's the strategic direction of the club. I think my story around somebody who's been involved in aviation now as a you know more than I'm fifty three, so somebody who's uh, mature age and where they are in their career starting to get into it there's not too many hobbies or interests that, that i think attract people like gliding does in this particular demographic and my particular demographic but gliding, gliding is one of those and i was actually talking to cfi because um i imagine 
that in the world of aviation and even uh sorry in the in the business of aviation and even i think for a lot of pilots for a long time to come we're going to have a pilot surplus with uh, the economic constriction or contraction around uh, certainly global uh, but even a degree of domestic flying there is going to be a lot of pilots that are looking uh, for alternative jobs for a while and uh, those guys and i know a lot of pilots those guys have got aviation itches that they need to scratch as well they're, they're passionate about what they do and so i think uh, that there is going to be a lot of opportunity for gliding if it plays its cards right to become a source of uh, accessible flying and accessible in the sense that the actual act of flying the airplanes is pretty cheap the actual even the act of owning the airplanes is pretty cheap if you want to even go ahead and own a glider it's uh, there's there are more expensive hobbies you can actually have and so uh, I, I think there's a real opportunity to promote the sport to people who are in the industry who are having a, a bit of a furlough from actually doing uh, flying or working on or participating in it, in it as a job who still are passionate about flying and they could actually do what I'm doing and actually exercise that through uh, doing it for fun as a hobby while they potentially work in another industry for a while waiting for aviation to return. So... Um, at this stage, the the club, to answer your core question, Chuck, at this stage, our club has been very uh, very lucky in that there's been a number of new people that have joined the club and there's a high level of energy and enthusiasm from uh, a number of new people that are just like myself uh, who uh, who have come along for, for, to be honest with you, I'm the only one that's come out of aviation so far out of the guys I'm thinking of. But the opportunity to potentially strategically target some people in the demographic that, that i've just described i think is there we need to think about how to do it in a way that uh, doesn't overcrowd the club and the facilities beyond the point where it would become uh, congested and then degrade the experience for everyone because you, you know you don't want to be turning up to the airfield and have so many people there that there is only one flight available on the saturday that's probably you know ironically that's one form of success leading to frustration for another form of uh, experience for others so just getting the balance right is important yeah we should have plenty of tow pilots right <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> <laughs> it's like some of the clubs like our club you know in the past we've definitely had that struggle where we just didn't have the tow pilot so there's a lot of depending on your club and how it works i mean the way ours is they're like a service member so we don't charge them to come fly they basically get to come fly free you know after they're checked out and yeah. Everything's good. They get to fly free as a tow pilot. They get to be in the air and continue to fly. So it, it's a great opportunity. I'm not sure about your observation, but my observation is a lot of the tow pilots are young young kids that are trying to get their hours up in order to get uh, you know pr progress their commercial pilot um, license in order to get an airline job. And ironically, the incentive for those guys to be doing this right now uh, isn't strong because, well, there ain't going to be an airline job at the end because we're going to have a, a glut of uh, airline qualified pilots in the system for a long while to come. But I think you're right. You'll find that your your joke, I think, is a good observation that you might find a lot of the airline pilots, again, might, you know, reacquaint themselves with an old, you know, tailwheel, you know, piston engine uh, endorsement and potentially even a latent tug endorsement and even uh, help out just so that they can actually you know, have a go every weekend at flying, uh, polling an aircraft just for the fun of it. It's a good point. Get in the air, you know? Yeah, exactly. 
Oh, I well, I'd want to do it if I was a guy who uh, had you know was passionate and was flying for a job and then couldn't fly. Man, it'd drive me crazy. I'd be desperate to have a have a fang at anything. Todd, uh, did you want to give a shout out? I always ask if someone wants to give a shout out before we close things up here at the end of the show. Yeah, I I will. Um, I want to give a shout out. Probably thank you for this. And I, this is um, I hadn't instinctively I know who to shout out. I would. Shout out, uh, well, frankly, I'd shout out my wife, who's always very supportive, my wife Jo, who's incredibly supportive with all my hobbies and interests, and, and I'm very blessed to, that that I'm, she's my life partner. But at, at the Central Coast Flying Club, there's two guys um, that uh, are that just the bedrocks of the place um, that, that I deal with all the time. Uh, there's the Chief Flying Instructor, Graham Martin, uh, and a Senior Instructor, Mike Woolley. Both, Mike, Mike is actually 80 years old, but he's as uh, as as energetic and uh, and as involved as anyone. He's I, I love Mike's um, approach to life and the fact that he's uh, such a uh, uh, an intensively passionate person about the sport and promoting the sport and also seeing people come through the club and just nurturing young students uh, through to through to learning to fly. And Graham and both these guys are obviously you know, volunteers who give so much of their own time and expect nothing back except satisfaction. And Graham Martin, the chief flying instructor, again, uh, he's a uh, a really interesting guy with so many, so many stories out of his life, uh, which has been uh, intrinsically linked, never professionally involved with aviation as a career, but has just uh, always been involved with aviation as a passion and, and something he does in a big way on the side. Uh, and their their uh, contribution to the club and their um, the knowledge that they share willingly and the selflessness with which they serve the club, I think, deserves a shout out. So big thanks to Mike and Graham. Yeah, a lot of people in the soaring world do it because of the passion. It's it's not about the money, that's for sure. That's what you see. Todd, thank you so much for telling your story here on Soaring the Sky. It's been great to have you. Oh, it's been really nice to be asked, Chuck, and uh, thank you for doing this podcast. I, I, I will finally say that um, your podcasts have been a source of uh, keeping me awake at night. I, you know, sometimes I try to listen to podcasts in order to help me doze off, but because your podcasts have got such interesting people, I constantly find myself lying in bed awake listening to your your people being interviewed and uh, and finding a great source of inspiration from uh, the very interesting people that you have on board. So uh, hopefully I've contributed to that in, uh, in some small way. Absolutely, and thank you. I don't want to keep you up at night, but I'm glad you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Chuck. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com or you can send us a note on the website, soaringthesky.com. Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.